How are you guys doing? Good? You good? Awesome. All right. So let's go ahead and just read tonight's text um, before we do anything else. And uh, we'll get going, all right? So uh, we've been in John. So we're in John 13. Is it on the screen? It is on the screen. And I'm going to get out of your way so you can see it. All right. John 13. Um, can I have two people read tonight? So somebody read verses 1 through 11 and then 12 through 20. 12 through 20, 1 through 11. No, 1 through 11. So we'll get two men tonight. Not being sexist, just saying. All right. One through eleven, then twelve through twenty. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that this hour had come apart on me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Thank you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's uh, pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you've preserved your word through the ages and that we can um, still come to know you um, through the very words you have spoken. Um, thank you for uh, this time together and just ask that you'll bless the reading and teaching of your word um, and gospel. In Christ's name, amen. All right. I want to kind of tell you guys about something real quick before I get going any further. So there's a movie that I personally love and adore. It's called The Village. Um, in this movie, there's a beautiful story. There's a beautiful love story between two characters. One character, Lucius Hunt, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix. And the other character, Ivy Elizabeth Walker, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, as the film progresses, the love that Lucius and Ivy have for each other becomes more and more evident to the audience as you're watching. See, Ivy's a blind woman in the movie, but, well, yeah, she's a blind woman. She's bold in her words. She says what's on her mind. Um, Lucius is the strong, silent type. He's like the exact opposite as far as that's concerned. See, they've grown up in the same village together. To Ivy, it's clear that Lucius, like, loves her and has loved her since their childhood. She's not blind to that, which is kind of the cool symbolism in the movie. However, Lucius has never told her, ever, that he loves her. So finally we get to this scene. It's set on a porch. It's like this epic scene. <laughs> to me, anyways. It's beautiful. Ivy wakes up, and she senses someone's on her porch. Um... And she walks outside, just a shot of her feet walking on the porch, and it comes up to Lucius, and he's just sitting on her porch late at night, looking out into the distance. Um, so she sits down, they, they begin this conversation, and she gets really bold, just like her character is. At one point, just like, just in, in, just in passing, implying, she uses the word, she's like, yeah, yeah, you know, because on our wedding day, blah, 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 blah. And Lucius is like, huh? What? And it's like, it's, Lucius is taken aback. He's astonished by what just happened. He's still silent in this moment. He's like, because he's never even talked to her about this. But she's bold. She's calling him to the mat at this point. She just got done. She's like, I've lived my whole life waiting for you to say something. I want to say it. I'm just going to imply that you already know this, that this is already understood between us. Um, but he doesn't say anything. He just kind of looks at her and he's like, he looks back down. He's like, oh, my gosh. 
And then she calls him to the mat. She looks over to him and asks him, why can you not say what is in your head? Now, here's the deal. Lucius has this absolutely wonderful and beautiful woman loving him his entire life. They've grown up in the same village. From the very beginning of this film, you can sense just how special she is to everyone else in the village. She's beautiful. People love her. So much so there's another character in the film who loves her, um, who's trying to get her. But Lucius is a strong, silent type, and she's doing his own thing, and she goes her own way, but she, she's fixated on him. But see, his pride is threatening any future they will ever have with each other. His pride of ever coming out and saying anything to her. Um, his pride, he would rather keep it to himself and, and not take the chance and not allow himself to be loved by her. And he almost misses out. Almost misses out on this beautiful love story. Well, anyways, um, when she asks him, what's, why can't he say what's in his head? He responds with one of the most beautiful... Um, monologues in uh, cinematic history, in my opinion. And I won't tell you what, what, what he says, but if you ever want to watch it, let me know. We will watch it, and I will buy dinner, and you will see the joy in my eyes as I watch it. Um, but anyways, long story short, he, he does express his love for her in his monologue, and they end up planning their marriage um, in the movie. Okay, so believe it or not, this illustration from this movie, right, this illustration actually is pretty relevant to tonight's passage in John. Um, and I, I, I want, I'm going to keep referring to that illustration, by the way, because I want, I, want, I want to unpack that illustration as we're also unpacking some of the scriptures, just so we can see that. Um, we've been going through the book of John this semester, as you know. Chris has been going through it all, all semester. And we're right on the precipice, directly on the precipice of the completion of Jesus' mission. What is Jesus' mission that we know? He came here to live the life that we couldn't live, die on the cross, death we should die, and rise from the dead, something we can never do. Absolutely supernatural. Jesus is coming to do that. We're on the precipice, right on the cusp of this completion of the mission. Jesus has been working with his disciples for three years now, about three years now. He's been doing miracles. He's been loving them to the end, as we see in the first couple of verses. Um... He's been explaining to his disciples about this great salvation, this mission that he's on. He's been explaining that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again. He's been explaining this to them, doing miracles, that he's about to be crucified and rise again for the sins of the world. And this plan is what, for tonight's purposes, I'm going to call the great salvation. He is telling them all about this great salvation that's coming. This text we saw, if you paid attention, Jesus is washing feet of the disciples. Stop. Think about that for a second. Let's move on. He's washing feet of people who are in sandals all day. How many of you own Chacos? Your feet are nasty at a certain time. When I go to intern training, when I go to intern training, every intern wears Chacos except for me because I have style. And I tell them that all the time, by the way. Where is it? Not Anna Catherine, though. She's... She's good. She's good. We have style. But um, we love you, Matt. Um, but there, I share a room with these interns, and their nasty, stank, dank feet are... I'm like, you need to, like, uh, sleep in the hallway, 
please. Um, so he's washing feet. But the whole point of him washing feet in this text is to explain a spiritual reality to us. Right? It's to explain about this great salvation. So there are three things I want to pull out from this tonight. Okay? Three things I want us to see. Number one, Jesus gives us a great salvation. Okay? Number two, our pride can keep us from this great salvation. And number three, this great salvation moves us to serve our neighbor. Point one is going to take the longest, and that's intentional. Um, I'm going to spend the most time on point one. And the final two points, we're going to kind of fly through a little bit. So let's hunker down on point one a little bit. Jesus gives us a great salvation. So let's just look in verse three. Uh, Let's see where to go. All right. Verse three says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given him all things or given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel. So verse 3 says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, knowing that he had come from God and is going back to God, then stooped down and started washing the feet of the disciples. Like I said, the foot washing is a spiritual teaching there. Jesus is teaching them something spiritually. And it's all about to culminate. All this is, he's about to go to the cross. And he's like, you guys need to get this right now. He's illustrating the completion of his mission, like I said. Dying on the cross, rising from the dead. That he's about to do. He's accomplishing a great salvation for his people, right? The great salvation is promised to whoever trusts in Jesus. They will be washed clean, that same imagery, of all their sins and stand before God perfect forever. That is what Jesus is accomplishing. And that's what he's teaching through the foot washing. All right, so if you're anything like me at this point, and when I say like me, I mean I tend to be very analytical. Um, when anybody talks, I'm thinking through all the logical sequences of everything they're saying and if everything makes sense to me. So if you're anything like me in that way, um, you, need, you need to have a couple of things explained. Also, if you're like me, you need to be washed by Jesus. When I see Jesus stooping down to wash the feet of his disciples, one thing blows out of me, one thing shouts out of me, um, yeah, I see all the times I don't do that. I don't know about you. Not literally washing feet, but all the times I don't serve those who are lesser than me. So one time I was driving home late at night and I stopped at 7-Eleven. Right? I stopped in. I was just having a little snack attack there. Um, uh, and so I walked in, got my snacks, come back out, go to my car. As I'm getting into my car, this man walks up to my car and he go, and he just, he tells me he's a homeless man, and he asks me if I have any money to give him, or if I can buy him something in the store. And to be honest, I didn't have any cash, so I was like, oh, I got money, bro. And he was like, well, can you buy me something? And to be honest, I probably could. But I was like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I really don't have any money. I just said the same thing. I said, I don't really have any money. He goes, yeah, but, I'm like, I don't really have any money. And he was like, 
He's like visibly frustrated. He's like, all right. Just like turned around and went into the store, I guess, to ask someone else. I saw him going to go talk to someone else. Um, so he turns around. I, I get into my car and I'm feeling a little bit bad. I'm like, but I'm trying. I'm like, I'll get over this. You know what I mean? Uh, whatever. And then I look and I realize that I had some leftover Lido pizza in my back seat. I've been looking forward to that Lido's pizza for the last couple hours because I ate it earlier and I'm going to go home and eat it again and treat myself. And it's going to be amazing. And I've been looking into it. It was actually two different kinds of pizza. It was the buffalo chicken pizza, which I don't know who got me into that around here. Maybe it was Jason. And uh, pepperoni sausage. And I was like super excited. But I get in and I see it and I'm like, oh, I could totally give that to him right now. I don't have money, but what I do have, I can give you. And I'm like, I don't know. And as I'm thinking about it, my car's driving. And I'm like, oh, look, I'm already pulling off, you know. And I'm thinking about it the whole way back, and I was like, I'll get over this. Anyways, long story short, I ended up getting home and then going back out to go find the guy because I just couldn't stand it. Couldn't find him. I was extremely selfish that night. Extremely selfish. It was a couple slices of pizza. And at the most, it was like a bag of chips. I could have bought him with my debit card. Um, and there was plenty of witnesses around. It's not like he's going to murder me in the back alley of some street. But I was extremely selfish that night. I, actually, I could line up tons of different stories to prove to you just how selfish I am. Tons of stories like that where I, I've been pretty ashamed of in the past. And I'm sure if you're honest, you could do the same thing. I'm sure you can do the same thing. You didn't quite love somebody the way it was proper to love them at that time. Um, you didn't quite treat somebody the way it's proper to treat them at that time. Different selfish moments in your life because of your emotions or because of outside factors, you've been selfish and didn't love people properly. See, that failure to love people properly is actually called sin. Now, this is why I say if you're like me in my analytical point, you might be thinking this. At this point, you might be saying, okay, it's sin, so what? So what? And I think this is important to go through because this first point of a great salvation, what is a great salvation if you don't know you need saving? So let's talk about that for a second. So what? So what? Not loving someone is sin. Who cares? Messing up a couple times, not loving people not a couple times, not that big of a deal. Well, here's the deal. Here's, here, here it is. It's a big deal because it's disobedience to God. And that's a big deal. Because God's a big deal. See, I'm leading you through the logical processes here. God's a big deal, therefore disobedience against him is a big deal. Here's what I mean. Let me prove that. All right. Let's take punching someone in the arm. Okay? Now, if you go to your friend, whoever your friend is, and you punch them in the arm, you might get a punch back. You might get an argument. Whatever. It depends on how hard you punch them. But whatever. That's where it ends pretty much at that point. It stays there. Now let's move up a little bit. If you, if you do the same thing, you punch a police officer in the arm that you don't know, you're either going to get arrested or you're going to get shot. <laughs> you punch your professor in the arm, might get expelled. Okay. Now you punch the president of the United States, the POTUS, in the arm. You might get shot by Secret Service if you're, well, arrested if you're lucky, most likely shot by the Secret Service. Now, so we see that the consequence for your action is, the consequence of your action is determined on the offended party. Who do you offend? It's not about what you do, it's about who you do it against. This is just, uh, go back, tell your logic professor that 
that this is logical. You know, Christianity is logical. So let's just sin is logical. Um, uh, let's see. Where am I? Okay. So yeah, when it comes to our sin, God is the offended party. The master of the universe is offended. That's way higher than any president will ever be. His title will never be master of the universe. And if he called himself master of the universe, we have another issue on our hand. So if, you're, if, if you can be killed for punching a president, he doesn't even get to the point of mastering all the galaxies and the solar systems and the planets. Offending him is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. Our sin offends him. And our sin goes deep. So early when we're like, ah, oh, but it's just a couple of times. But here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. As you grow up, you kind of understand. If you look at the world and you're honest with yourself and, and you grow up and stuff, one thing you realize is that even your own motives are sinful. Even the good things you do are mixed with sin. Selfishness, pride. Look at me. Look how good I am. I remember when I was a kid, I, I came in for like 25 bucks. I was so happy and I bought chicken wings for the entire family. I was like, I'm going to order from Wings Plus, which was like this amazing wings place in Florida. And I was like, and I'm like, I, I catered dinner that night. And we're eating wings and I'm like chomping on my barbecue and garlic. It was amazing. And I looked at my brother and I was like, I'm like, my brother's like seven years older than me. I was like, I'm, like, I'm saying, bro, like you ain't going to say thank you. <laughs> and he was like, well, not now. Like, that's why you did it. That's why you did it. Like, you don't deserve it, thank you. And I was, like, so angry at him. I look back and I'm like, I shouldn't be doing it for a thank you. But that's how we, even our best things get mixed up with our own pride and our own selfishness and look at me, look how great I am. We sin in actions, we sin in thoughts. All very thoughts. Jesus talked about this a lot. It's not enough just to not do something, but our very thoughts are sinful and can condemn us. This is a high standard. Can you get away from it? I don't think anyone here can get away from it. I can't. Yeah, I've never uh, done this, but I've sure thought it. I've never, I've, <laughs> I've never killed anyone, but I've hated him like severely and wished death upon him. But I didn't do it. Jesus says, no, 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 that can, the th very thought condemns you as well. Because it's the sin of the heart. So if this is the case, right, if the standard is so high, our consequence has to be so high. But check it out. If the consequence is that severe, and the consequence is God's wrath and eternal punishment, if that is the consequence, how much greater should our salvation be? This is why... Great salvation is the point of this text. You can't understand a great salvation unless you understand it in contrast with a great consequence. Jesus took every single one of his people's sins on him. Every single one of your sins on him. Every action, every time you verbally diss someone, and every thought, every time you... Have, Oh, thank you. But inside, you're like burning hell. Every single time, Jesus took every single one on his back. He paid for everything. I need you guys to get this because nothing else will make sense. Nothing else in life should make sense unless you understand this message of Christ. He paid for everything. On the cross, Jesus took every sin of his people and gave them in exchange 
every ounce of righteousness. Okay, this, a lot of this stuff can get really the- theoretical. Just stop and think for a second. There's nothing wrong with sitting back and thinking. I think we've all maybe had to take, I had to take a philosophy 101 class, and it's not for everyone, but it's good to stretch your mind every once in a while. I need you guys to think through this because this is really serious. He gave you every ounce of perfection. Everybody goes, no, no one's perfect. You're right, no one's perfect in themselves. But in Christ, you can literally say people are perfect. In Christ, they're perfect. That doesn't even make sense to us. Because we know we sin every day. But when the Father looks at us, we're perfect. This is our great salvation. Jesus is perfect and gave his perfect to every individual person that is his. Everyone. Do you call yourself a Christian? That is you. You have absolutely Christ's perfection right now standing before the Father. That is amazing. Immediately, if you're anything like me, you're going to start thinking of all the... You're going to be piling up a list of all the wrong things you've done. Yes, and that stuff exists. But guess what? The Father sees Christ's perfection, not you. And not your stuff. Jesus has done it all. And He's given it to us freely. We receive this by faith alone. Okay? We receive it by faith alone. Romans 5.1, we read this earlier. This verse literally changed my life. And I don't say literally in an unliteral way. I mean it's very literal. Because um, I don't like when people say literally. My, my head will literally explode. That's not true. It literally changed my life. Um, Romans 5.1. And now, having been justified by faith. We talked about justification a couple weeks ago. If you remember anything about what it is, if anyone ever asks you, what is justification? You say, it is being made right in God's sight. Absolutely right. What does it mean like, don't justify yourself? Saying, you've done something and now you're trying to make it okay. God makes you okay. You've been justified before God. He makes you, I'm sorry. I had a lot of sass right there. makes you, okay. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That changed my life. Because as a Christian, I felt like I was still a hamster running on a wheel that I still was working for God to like me. Jesus paid it all. And on top of it, he said, it is finished. Though, let those words be the motto of your life. It is finished. It's done. The work is over. The work necessary for God to say, you're justified, you're off the hook, so to speak. You're perfect. It's done. It is finished. This is what the great salvation is. Now, for those in here who aren't Christians, okay, what this means is that Jesus is calling, not calling, excuse me, Jesus is not calling you to moral reform. I'm going to repeat that. Jesus is not calling you to change up your life. He is not. He's not calling you to get your act together. He's not calling for you to do that. He's not asking you to stop cussing, stop um, drinking, stop smoking. He's not asking you to do that stuff. He's not calling you to do that stuff. He's calling you to Him. Jesus is calling you to come to Him. I, you guys, <laughs> on my campus, it was a misunderstanding. I'm sure it is here and in, other, in most places. People think about Christianity, they think about, ugh, rules. Jesus is not calling the world to moral reform. He's calling them to Him. 
He wants you to believe and trust in Him for your salvation. He wants you to rest in His work, in His righteous living, in His obedience to His parents, in His non-hatred towards His brother, in His perfect integrity and character and um, lustful lustlessness, if that's even a term or phrase or word. Um, he's calling you to trust in His work that's now applied to you. Now it's like you did it. Now it's like you loved your parents perfectly. He's calling you to trust in Him and His work for that. You cannot pay for your sins. Let's repeat that. You cannot pay for your sins. That's why Jesus did it. Or else this whole passion of the Christ story is a lot of theatrics for no reason. We just have an overly emotional, theatrical God. Look at me. <laughs> Don't make me sing. Like, we have that kind of God. But no, He went through what He did and He did what He did because it needed to be done. <clears throat> now, for those of you who are a Christian, this means the performance is over. The performance is over. I was just talking to Seamus before, and I was talking about how I grew up um, doing competitive acting. I was part of a group, and we would go competition every year and compete against all these other drama teams. We won first place five times, by the way. It has nothing to do with the story, but I figured i say it. So I have all the medals, by the way. Um, went to nationals, and that's a whole other story. Okay, so it's, it feels good to perform in those venues. And you perform. You work for months, and you do things because you want applause, you want people to like you, and you want the judges to give you high ranks, and you want to be at all the other teams. And that's fun because drama's fun and singing's fun and all that kind of stuff is fun. It's not so much fun when you're getting pe- and you're doing it. You're in a competition to be loved. Do you want to be in a relationship where you have to work for the person's love or you just they just love you? I mean, it's pretty exhausting to work for people's love. <sighs> to work for people to like want to invite you places. It's exhausting. The performance is over, Christians. The world is asking us to perform in every way. We know that. In school, go get a good degree. Go get a job. Make something of yourself. Something to prove your worth. Something to prove that you didn't waste your life. You didn't do this. You didn't, you didn't just sit around. You, you made something out of your life. You, you're a man. They want you to prove that you're a man and you're not a boy anymore. They want you to prove that, that you're, a, you're strong in character, you're strong in integrity, whatever the case may be. But here, here's the deal. I'm here to tell you once again, it is finished. Notice I've repeat this a million times because this is the most important message that we need to get and the most common message we forget. It is finished. Your future and your identity is complete. It's done. It's secure. We're working for our futures. And in one sense, that's a good, good thing. You know, you, you go to college, you get a degree, you want to get a career, you're working for your future in that sense. But your future, your real future... For all eternity, your identity, your worth, it's done. I went to college because I wanted a bachelor's of science degree, and without one, I felt like I was worthless. To be real honest with you, all my friends had one. If I didn't have one, I didn't do anything with my life. I needed, I did whatever I could to get that bachelor's degree. It became my idol, and that idol was a terrible master because now I'm 
upwards in debt I can't even count, all because I needed something to validate my existence. Jesus is a much better master than that. You're not going into debt by chasing him. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your work. He sees Jesus's. All the good things you do, missions trips, saying no to that sin, all your omissive sins, your permit, whatever, it's great. But when he looks at you, he doesn't see that. He sees Jesus's work. This is really good news. Because like I said earlier, even your good works are mixed with all these self-doubt, pride, all this kind of stuff. So if he looked at our works, he would be pretty disappointed. But alas, he doesn't. Alas, Jesus doesn't. Or God, or the Father doesn't. He only sees the work of Jesus. So here's my last part of this first point. Christians, relax. Relax. Learn to dance. Like seriously, like learn to dance. Here's the deal. Those who aren't dependent on the opinions of others can dance freely. Because you don't care. No longer is your worth tied up in people thinking you're cool or some kind of worthless reputation. You can now dance. The gospel has been described by some as, as a dance. Jesus invites you into this, this beautiful dance. If you believe in Jesus, here's the deal. That's where you are, rec- whether or not you even recognize it. You're in the dance. In a beautiful dance with the best dancer in the world, in the universe. So look to the one who's leading you. He's Jesus. Dance. Now, going into the second point, based off this great salvation, I really hope I did what I was hoping to do there, which I really want you to see Jesus as beautiful. (laughs) He did everything and didn't ask you for anything. He still doesn't ask you for anything to make up for anything. He's the perfect love. But going into point two, if we go through verses six through ten, let's read verses six through ten. Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, right? In verse 6, He came to Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you don't understand now. But afterward, you will understand. If you go to the book of Acts, we see Peter understanding it. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And he goes into something about Judas. Here's the deal. Grace is amazing, but our pride can keep us from this grace. Everything I just described is amazing. It's absolutely free of charge. Jesus, and there's no catch. There's no like, here, come to me free of charge. All right, now you're here. You have to be completely perfect. And if you're perfect, I mean, I like you. I might just tell you to go sit outside. Yeah, you're still my son. Get the heck out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Get out of my house. If you came from, a, maybe you came from a family like that. A lot of us did. 
Some of like I, I have this one friend who had like the perfect upbringing, and he's like the Leave It to Beaver kind of family. I've never seen that show, but apparently everyone still understands that reference. Do people still understand that reference? No. All right. Well, it's a black and white show. It's really Magoo, and does people understand that reference? Never mind. I don't understand that reference. All right. <laughs> Anyways, he came from a really perfect family is my point. But if you ever came from a family like that, like Jesus is not like that. He's not that father who's just constantly disappointed in his children. It's not a bait and switch. You're not in a bait and switch. But here's the deal. Our pride can keep us from this. Our pride can say, no, no, no. Just like Peter. Notice Peter in the text. He's like, but God, no, no, no. You can't wash my feet. Do you blame him, by the way, for saying that? If the president walked into your dorm room or your apartment and he's like, yo, let me cook you some breakfast. Now, most of you might be like, um, I think I'm supposed to cook you breakfast. I think that's the way it's supposed to work. I don't understand what's happening right now. Or let's say maybe your grandmother or grandfather or something is like somebody you really dearly love and you want to show them hospitality. You want to love on them. You don't want them just coming over and serving you. Like, oh, it's my place. Like, when I come to your place, you can do that, but... So Peter, in the same way, he's like, but God, like, you're God. <laughs> you don't wash my feet. It can come off very humble. Like we're ex- expressing humility here. Matthew Henry, old Christian guy, dead now, great thinker, wrote a commentary on the Bible, great pastor. In this passage, he made a comment, and he said, it's not humility, but unbelief to put away the offers of the gospel as if it's too rich to be made for us or it's too good to be true. We can feel like we hear this great message like you get complete forgiveness by simply trusting that Jesus forgives you and resting in that. You're like, but now I got to do something. There's things I got to do, man. Um, I need to go read my Bible more. I need, I need, to, uh, I need to cuss less. Um, I need to do this. Um... Jesus is like, stop. That's not humility. That's not you think more of God than the other person does. That's unbelief. The gospel of grace is completely antithetical to how we are trained to think. In, in our world, you get what you put in. We all understand it. We all understand the concept of good work or hard work. If you want a hot body, what do you do? You go to the gym. You eat right. Okay. If you want to get to know someone better, you put in the work to get to know them better. If you want a relationship to last, you put in the work to make it last or else it ain't going to last. You want good grades, you put in the work to get good grades. This is how things work. This is how the world system works. We look down on people who want something for nothing. We can't stand it. Like, what have you done for me? God's in the business of completely working opposite in any way. He turns everything upside down. This is why it's so hard to believe. He turns everything upside down, you guys. Everything upside down. In the gospel, you get everything for nothing. I need you to get that. You get everything for nothing. There's nothing to ever add to it. So don't let pride keep you from that. Don't let the pull myself with my bootstraps, blue collar work mentality pull you away 
from a free offer of the gospel. Grace is free. C.S. Lewis said that God is like a roaring lion. John Calvin once said, um, you don't have to defend God. He's like a lion. Just let him out of his cage. He'll defend himself. God is a wild guy. Like the, the picture of Aslan in Narnia is such a proper picture of this wild lion. If you've ever read the books, they can't control Aslan. They can't control where he is and they can't control when he shows up. It's frustrating to the characters in the book. They want to see him. They love him. He shows him what he wants and he does what he wants. He's not a tame lion, as Lewis would say. So don't let your pride keep you from Jesus. You can never have Jesus if you are looking to work for His love. He calls us to sit down like Peter and the disciples and be washed by Him. So so again, even though the gospel seems too good to be true, it's not. Because it's true. This right here, if, if there was a theology student here, he may want to debate me after what I'm about to say. You can't outsin God's grace. I needed that a couple years ago when I was at Liberty. You can't outsin God's grace. You can't outrun His love. I don't care what you've done. Don't care what you're thinking right now and how ugly you think I am. That's sinful, but it won't outsin God's grace. Before we move into the last point, we're talking about pride. We're talking about Peter's pride here. Peter's pride, like Lucius in the village, almost kept him from the most amazing thing that's ever happened to him. Almost. God was faithful to Peter. He went to the cross for Peter. And Peter changed. There's another character in the story in John 13. And he's Judas. Judas had pride too. Judas' pride would not allow him to come to Jesus. For Judas, though, it never got worked out. He took that pride to his death. And the reason I say that is because be careful with your pride. If you Check your heart. Like, God, am I being too prideful to just fall into your arms of grace? And if you are, be careful. Because Judas, he never got out of it. It led him to his death. That's another way, that's another result of pride in our lives. And that's why pride is dangerous. Going into the third point, verses 12 through 17. Now, like I said, this third point is, this great salvation we've been talking about moves us to serve our neighbor. So in 12 through 17, it reads, When he, Jesus, washed their feet, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Real quick, in this third point, the shortest point, I want to jump back to the very beginning. Remember when it says that Jesus 
knowing that God gave him everything and knowing that he was going back to God, knowing that he was completely loved and completely accepted by the Father, then moved to wash the feet of the disciples. Sounds nice. So watching his YouTube video, and you've probably seen it. If you haven't, you've probably seen a video just like it. Just a guy, it's like a social experiment type thing. Guy walking around New York City, young, college age, probably white guy, middle class, probably upper middle class, whatever. Um, doesn't He's not poor or anything like that. And he's just walking up to people in New York City. And when he sees someone, he'll, he'll, he walks up to people who are like eating pizza or eating food. And he'll ask them, like, hey, can I have some, can I have some pizza? Real nice about it. And people are like, just, everybody turns him down. No, no. He's not going up to homeless people. He's going up to just people on the street or in the restaurants. One guy even cusses him out, like, go get yourself a job. And um, just makes him feel real, like a real big idiot in front of people. Um, it then shows, like, a couple of the guys who are in on this video. Um, it shows them, they walk up to some homeless guy sitting on the, on the corner, he's sitting on the curb, and they give him a box with some, like, pizzas in it. Like, I guess, I'm assuming it's like half a pizza. So they said they were eating it, but they got full. So it's like half a pizza, and they give it to the homeless man. The homeless man's thankful. He's like, thank you, thank you. And then about like 20 minutes later, it shows that original guy who was walking up to everyone. That guy comes and he finds a homeless man. He sits down. He's like, hey, can I have a slice of pizza? Oh, man's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And he's like sharing with them and he's sharing with them and he's doing this. And, you know, we're watching. And we're like, oh, it's awesome. It's, it's heartwarming because the person who had little gave much. Right. And we see that. And it's heartwarming. We but we kind of understand that we can almost like if you. We're tempted to like judge and get down on those people who said no to him and cussed him out. But it, I was watching kind of like, I wonder if I would be any different than the people who turned him down. Um, and kind of because I don't really know what it's like to go hungry. And I'm assuming, if I'm wrong, you can correct me later. I'm assuming that most of you in here, if not all of you, don't know what it's like to not eat for a week or a week and a half or anything like that. We, we're not in need like that. Most likely. So we kind of understand, like, it's hard to understand where someone's coming from. It's hard to have compassion where someone's coming from if you're not really there. But the text, again, in the gospel, everything's turned upside his head. In the text, it says, knowing that Jesus knew nothing. Jesus didn't know any need. That's what I mean. He didn't know any need. He didn't have a need that we needed to fulfill for him. He stooped down to wash the feet of the disciples. I think this shows a very important thing. The natural consequence when it comes to the gospel and Jesus changing your heart, the natural consequence for knowing that you stand... The reason I went through all that is because the natural consequence of you knowing that you stand perfect before God as a Christian... And you owe nothing. There's no interest you have to pay back. Knowing that and understanding that and letting that sink in allows you, it just moves you to go love your neighbor freely. Why? Why? Because you don't need anything from them. You're no longer in need of other people's acceptance and love or whatever. You're not in need of it. Being complete and what the Father says about you in Christ moves you absolutely to love your neighbor freely without needing anything from them. See, remember, Jesus wouldn't let Peter wash him. Why? 
Because Jesus didn't need Peter to wash him. I don't need you to wash him. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it so you can give me something back. That's how we operate. But in the gospel, it's completely different. I'm not doing anything for you to get any to get anything back from you. So here's the deal. If Jesus is your righteousness, Jesus, like you're looking for how can I be married? What what can my identity be? What can my righteousness be? It's kind of a term I like to use. What is your righteousness? Like where do you find your hope and what makes you right? If Jesus is that for you, if Jesus is your righteousness, not your grades, not your parents' opinion, not your girlfriend or your boyfriend's opinion, not in anything else, not in your roommate's opinion, you can now, like Jesus, radically love people where they are. Because you're complete. You're at rest. You don't need a pat on the back. You don't need props. Because you already have the smile of God. God already smiles on you and calls you his dearly loved and beloved child. And you're like, dang. All right. Well, now when I go and I'm there for this person, one of my friends, I can expend myself for that person. And I don't have to worry about it. I don't need them to refill me, so to speak. Basically, what I'm saying is that you found your identity in Jesus. And your worth in Jesus. You are you no longer think of yourself, but you think of the needs of others. Um, C.S. Lewis, it's kind of a famous quote. Um, and I hate using famous C.S. Lewis quotes. I like to use obscure stuff. But this is not obscure. Um, he once said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. See, looking to Jesus, now that you're in this great salvation, looking to Jesus... In your day-to-day life is how you grow in Christ-likeness. If you're busy looking at Jesus, you will be busy, or you won't be busy looking at yourself because your eyes are taken up. And when you look at Jesus, you will see the needs of others. You will feel the needs of others because Jesus is where the hurt and the broken are. Jesus was willing to lay his life down for his enemies. Willing. Willing. We're called to have that same heart in this text. And he's about to lay his life down for every one of those enemies. Romans 3 says, we're not just unbelievers. If before you come to Christ, you're an enemy of God. He laid his life down. He's about to lay his life down for his enemies. And we're going to see in the, in the future chapters. We're not called just to lay our life down for those who love us or for the ones we love or for our beautiful girlfriend or for whatever. We're not called... We're, we're also called to lay our life down for our enemy. See, Jesus laid his life down for his enemy. That's why you and I are even here right now. So, let's pray. Father, uh, I just come before you and I thank you for this night. Uh, thank, you for the, thank, thank you for this text. Um, Lord, thank you for your gospel that changed my life um, tremendously. I grew up in the church and... Um, I don't know, at some point, Lord, I, I, I guess you saw fit to tell me that gospel again. I make it understandable in a way I never understood it. So long I worked for your pleasure. I worked so that you didn't just love me in some theoretical sense, but you actually liked me and liked to have me around. But then it was proclaimed to me one day that you already, you already do. There's nothing left to be done. Now it's just time to dance with you. Enjoy you.
God, I pray that this message becomes real to every one of us um, and it changes our life. So God, again, thank you for this night. Um, Just ask as we go out from here um, that uh, we have a good night, good week with studies and as finals approach or Thanksgiving weekend, first of all, we have a great time and then everybody does well in finals as well. And we just ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Jesus,